celebration of gifts and what we call Christmas. This week we'll be in 1 John. We'll be in just the first four verses of the book of 1 John. We all enter into Christmas season with expectations to continue this theme for us. In reality, we enter into every situation with expectations, whether that's Christmas or a birthday or a conversation with your spouse after just waking up or a parenting situation with your children. We enter into every situation with expectations. In some situations, we long for things like affirmation. We want the approval of others or we enter into situations with the expectation of a certain outcome and the ability to control that outcome or to to persuade the situation toward a particular outcome, or we expect in situations ourselves to, to be masterful in it, to be perfect in it, to, to work through it well, and, or maybe we expect peace in every situation, restfulness in every situation, comfort, if you will. Let me ask you this question. Have you ever thought to question your expectations? To genuinely put your expectations on the chopping block, if you will, or up on the, on the observation panel and, and go, what are my expectations? To ask yourself this question, do these expectations then align with God's expectations? Does what I'm hoping for, what I'm longing for, what I am staking my life upon, align with what God wants to happen? Even, even as I walk through mundane moments, right? I'm just talking about big situations, but you heard my examples just a few moments ago. But are my expectations in the conversation I'm about to have with my spouse that's going to last 20 seconds, are my expectations the same as God's? Or the conversation I'm about to have with a coworker, or as, is what I'm about to look at, or to think about, or to muse upon, and my expectations for it, do these align with God? What was I, for example, what was I hoping for when I signed up for this degree program, or I signed up for this job? Could it be that I am changed? I've changed or I'm, I'm shifting things because my expectations are not being met or my hopes are misplaced. Let me ask you this question. Have you ever thought to ask someone else to question your expectations? Hey, these are my expectations going into this. What do you think? Is, are they okay? Is that all right? Is that good? Is it, is it biblical? Am I... Aligned with God? Situations like, what, what, was, what were you hoping for when you had kids? <laughs> what were your expectations? Some days I wake up and go, wow, I've got five kids. What was I thinking? Right? It's just crazy. I don't, I don't know if I was thinking about, I, I don't know. What were my expectations? And then, based upon these expectations, could I be running? Could I be trying to chase after something because my expectations were wronged and maybe even crushed 
in this? Or what were you hoping for? Let's just, we'll put it out there. When you came to this church, what were your expectations? What are our expectations coming into Christmas? What are we hoping for? What are we longing for? It's what's happening in this passage that we're about to study. John's expectations were transformed when he met Jesus. They were challenged and they were changed. All that John was hoping for was changed quite literally in the blink of an eye. All that he was expecting was changed when he saw Jesus. And then, the reality of Christ come in the flesh, John is bringing to bear on his readers, on his audience, the people that would hear these words. He is now saying, because Christ has come, it means this. It changes things. It, it has bearing upon your lives. And he is questioning their expectations, not explicitly. He is challenging their hopes, not explicitly. But he is going to question their motives and their actions, and he's going to push them concerning these things. Let's read verse 1 through 4. <clears throat> that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testified to it, and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Let's pray. Father, may you give us the faith to say, I've seen and I've touched Father, may, may, may you make more real to us today Jesus, who is eternal life, who is the word of life. And Father, may our joy be complete because of it. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Christmas, we talked about last week, is not simply memorable, but transformational. Christmas is not just something that we commemorate or something that we reflect on the happening of this event, but this event changes things. It's transformational. As we think about sitting down with our families, whatever that looks like, or sitting down even by ourselves and celebrating Christmas, it's not simply a recounting of an event, but what does that event mean? What does it change? How does it, what does it bring to bear upon my life, my thoughts, my emotions, my family, my kids, my parenting? What does it, how does it change? It's not something for us to simply remember, but something that changes things. John 
wants us to believe, first of all, that this event really did happen. Really did happen. He says, we have heard, we have seen with our eyes, we have touched with our hands. But in fact, he, he says this twice, this kind of this phrasing, we have seen, we have touched. He says it twice in just a matter of four verses. This is important to John. That, that we grasp that this really happened, that his readers and us included would grasp that it really happened, that eternal life himself was made manifest to them, was present. We have seen, we have heard, we have touched. And he says, to this we testify. Now let's talk about testifying for something. We all testify to something all the time. We all make proclamation to things all the time. Whether we realize it or not, whether it's verbal or not, our lives testify to something all the time. If you're a, a super Christian, you testify to lofty things like, well, God is good all the time, and all the time... God is good. There you go. Check. God's timing is always perfect. I heard that one this Christmas season. Or God works all things out for our good. Of course, we forget the rest of the, the verse there, but that's good. So we're, we're good, and we testify to these things. Now listen, just so I'm clear. Those words and those phrases are true, and those are good things to say. The issue is, when we testify to that with verbal testimony in our lives in very practical and mundane ways, say something different. It's, we call it super, it's being superficial. It's, it's not real. Now, if you're a normal Christian, you testify to just about everything else. Like things like having control in your life is the most important thing ever. Everyone else should get on board or or you testify that discovering who you are is the most important thing, and everything else should get out of the way while you do it. Or you testify that joy can only be had when my circumstances allow me restfulness. Again, some of these things are not necessarily bad, but the question is, what are we testifying to? And the, real, the realization that our lives, because we are worship beings, we worship our worshiping testifies to something we believe about that which we're worshiping. And we testify to these things all the time, and oftentimes, much, much of the time, without even realizing that we're doing it. We don't realize that our, our, what we are saying to the world, to the, the principalities of the, the air, the, even the evil among us and the righteous among us, we are testifying that that, that thing that I want more than Christ, I have staked my life upon it. Because see, that's, that's the reality. Whatever we testify to is that which we are staking our lives upon. Let me say that again. Whatever we are testifying to, we are staking our lives upon. What do we mean by staking our lives upon? Let me explain that. It, it becomes the driving factor in our life. 
It becomes that which that drives us. It becomes the determiner of our actions. Let me put it in uh, fancy church terms. It becomes our doctrine or our dogma. And we live by it. Now listen, there's nothing wrong with testifying to the goodness of something, right? To the beauty of something. I'm gonna, I want to give testimony to the, to the, you know, last night we were talking about a new job, right? And the goodness of this new job. And testimony, it's, it's a good place. And I'm thankful for it. And, you know, that, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about <clears throat> testifying in the sense that John is here where my life is now being driven by it. I'm staking my life upon it. This kind of proclamation and testimony. But again, a lot of times we have to be careful because we might be living this way towards something other than God and not realize it. But John is saying, we saw Him, we touched Him, and now we testify to it. This seeing, this touching. John, John is saying, our lives are now staked upon the reality of Jesus coming in the flesh. What's he saying? It is now the determiner of our actions. It is now the driving force behind our thinking, beyond, behind our doing. This Jesus now come in the flesh, the kingdom of heaven now come upon us, now changes everything in our lives. It changes our expectations. It changes our testimony. He's saying we stake our lives on the coming of Jesus. And he means quite literally. But many of them will die. Unnatural deaths because they have staked their lives on the coming of Jesus. This is their doctrine. This is his dogma. Jesus has come in the flesh. Eternal life. The word of life has come in the flesh. That is our hope, and we testify to this reality. He's saying our expectations are wrapped up in Jesus. Now come. He is our hope. And not only has He changed our expectations, but it must change yours too. It must change yours too. That's why he's writing. Read on it. We don't have time to read on to the rest of 1 John, but that's why he's writing that these reality, that this reality of the incarnation would come to bear on your life. That it would change you too. That's why we are testifying. That's why we are proclaiming it. He says in verse 3, That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you. And then what's those words right after that? So that you too. So he's saying this change that has happened in our lives because of the reality of the incarnation must, we are proclaiming it to you because it must bring change to you too. That which has transformed us must transform you as well. 
you'll see that as John goes on in the book of 1 John that he will be questioning their hopes and their expectations and their motivations and what they're living for and the fruit that comes from it. And he says, they must be transformed by Christmas, to put it in our terms today. I want to give you today four ways that Christmas will transform you if you behold Christmas rightly. If you behold Christmas rightly, four ways from this passage that Christmas will transform you. I chose the word behold because behold is more than just simply knowing. And it's also more than just simply feeling. It's In some ways it's kind of a measure of both. It's to see something but to recognize its beauty as well. It's So if we would behold Christmas, if we would understand it, but also recognize its beauty, both to see its glory and its goodness, not just it as information, but if we would behold the reality of God come in the flesh rightly, it would transform us. The first one is this, it will make you deeply relational with the Father. Christmas, if beheld rightly, will make you deeply relational with the Father. Look at verse 3. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. Let's talk about this fellowship thing here for a few moments. First of all, our fellowship with Him is personal. It's personal. It's intimate. It says our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son. It's the word koinonia. It means this, if Christ has really become physical, if Christmas is true, then we have a basis for a personal relationship with God like never before. If this is true, we have the basis for a personal relationship with the Father like never before. Wow. God is no longer just a concept or some completely transcendent being or some theory to think upon or even an idea to muse upon. He has made Himself come in the flesh so that we might, to some degree, grasp the Father. Understand Him. Someone I can know personally. Someone I can touch and see. Someone I can know things about in an even more intimate way. Clearly God has revealed Himself in the Old Testament. I'm not ignoring that. But now He has come in this deeply personal and intimate way. On a very, in a very practical note, very practical note, He's, he's come and His coming at the very least, gives us more information 
I mean, think about as you're building relationships with people. You have to know something about them, right? <laughs> like, you have to know something beyond Facebook about someone to have, you know, an actual good relationship with them. Like, and then if you want to move beyond that, you, you, you're going to know bad things about them. Broken things about them. Hurtful things about them. You're going you're to know these things. And, and then in, it's in that kind of context that you get to exercise unconditional love and understanding and empathy and sympathy. And, and you get to show them grace and mercy and have that shown to you. And you know more. It takes more information to know someone personally. Jesus come on the flesh shows us so much of who God is, right? When you see Jesus interacting with the poor, with the broken, when you see Jesus interacting with the, the spiritual oppressors, when you see Jesus interact, you, you, what, are we wa- what are we walking away with? Who is God? How does God deal with these things? What does God think about this situation and this situation? What is God's heart proclaiming to us? And so Jesus come in the flesh, the God come in the flesh. Our fellowship is personal. Someone we can relate to. You get to see him weep and cry. You get to see him upset and cast down. You get to see Jesus exalting his Father. If we have data points like this, information like this, then our relationship can be personal. But our fellowship is not just personal, our fellowship is also eternal. It's eternal, meaning it never ends. For those who are truly saved, God has rescued out of their plight. Their fellowship never ends. Listen, no Christian is ever in fellowship with God and then out of fellowship with God. In fellowship with God and then out of fellowship with God. You are in fellowship with God based on the work of somebody else. Koinonia is this idea of like partnership. You can't sever this relationship. Now, you may not be acting like you're in fellowship with God. You may be breaking the rules of this fellowship with God. But it is God who holds the keys to this fellowship. This fellowship is unbreakable. Our fellowship with the Trinity is non-conditional as far as it concerns us. It is the work of God who brought us into it and is the work of God that keeps us in it. Once you are saved, you enter into permanent fellowship with God. Verses like John 10, 28, I give them eternal life. They may never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. This fellowship is unending. It's a permanent reality, not conditional upon your doings or your experience. Think about that for a moment. You're in some dark moment of misbelief. 
to hold on to this truth that my fellowship with my God and Father is unbreakable. Even though I don't feel it right now, even though I can't see it right now, it's there. And by faith, I believe it's there. Look at what he did to come to us. The incarnation means look at what God has done to get to know him personally. Look at what God has done to show us who he is. To reveal himself to us so that we might know him and enjoy him and experience him and trust him and follow him and be with him. God has revealed much of his character for us to see and enjoy by invading our space. By moving into our lives. The question for us is what are we doing about it? What are we doing with it? Like when it comes to Christmas, is it just feeling inspirational or sentimentality? Like, for example, when you pray at Christmas, think about this for a second. Is it just about, thank you for the time with family, thank you for another year, thank you for the gifts and the food, oh, and by the way, thank you for Jesus being born, amen? Again, these are good things. Or is it, when I pray, I really want to know you. I really want to dedicate my life to knowing you. You have come in the flesh and revealed yourself. Now, God, this Christmas, let me behold your glory and your Son now come in the flesh. What are we doing with this reality that he has come? Again, it's not just a, a memorable thing. It's not just a memorable event. It is something that is transformational and meant to be such. Listen, if Jesus gave up his life in heaven to reveal who God is to us, the Holy Spirit will spare no expense when it comes to making God known to you through Jesus, his word. The Spirit is mighty powerful to reveal God to us through Jesus, His Word. We receive not, I think, because we ask not. To behold Christmas rightly means you must see that Christmas is an invitation to know God personally. God saying, I have drawn near to you. I have, came, I have come all the way to you. Now you draw near to me. So if you behold Christmas rightly, it will make you deeply relational with the Father. Second, it will make you happily content. Happily content. First John 1 John 1.3a, the first part, says that which we have seen and heard. Let's think upon this some more, some implications of this. We often, when we think of salvation, 
I'm afraid, think of this idea. We want to be saved out of this world. Like saved to something else. Like particularly, I, I want to be saved so that I go to heaven. Like I, that's my, I want to be moved. Salvation means me being moved into someplace else. We often are not content with much of anything around us. We want relationships to change, job to change. Nothing is as we expected it to be. I mean, we sit around thinking about Jesus in heaven, but then we don't do anything with it. Oh, oh yes, by the way, I'm supposed to live a certain way. But here's what's happened. The kingdom of heaven has come to bear upon this place. Here's, here's what I want you to see. Christ come in the flesh means that this place matters to God. It's not just Jesus paid for our sins so that we can get to heaven or so that we can get out of this place, so that we can move on from this world, so that we can do away with the stuff that's around us, so that we can just mentally live in a different place and ignore the realities around us. No, He comes to this place. He comes to redeem us in this place. Not just to get us out of this place. Our present circumstances are important. Again, it's important because Christmas means that God has come into the world. Listen, your circumstances are important. And God means to redeem you in them. And we know this because He hasn't pulled us out of them. That which we have seen, that which we have heard, what, what are we, listen, he's come here. He is rescuing us in this place. He came into these things, not to simply pull us out of them. I think we often think there's no way the divine would come down. It's all about us going up. It's all about us getting to heaven. It's all about us leaving this place. But do, but do we live as though the reality is, yes, we believe Jesus has come in the flesh, but do we live as though He has come into this place? Or do we live only waiting for the kingdom to come? The kingdom has come. Listen, we do this. We, we live waiting for the kingdom to come as though Jesus has not come. When we do things, like John's going to talk about this idea of living in the light, walking in the light. How are we going to walk in the light? Because the light has come. That's how we walk in the light, because the light has come. We don't walk in the light waiting on the light to come, even though He will come again, but we walk because He has come. The kingdom has come. We walk in light of this. We walk in darkness. We walk as though the kingdom has not come. And we don't take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. We live as though the kingdom has not come. Or we, when we don't take advantage of God revealing Himself to us. Or when we neglect things like being known and knowing other people. Or we think, I can do whatever I want on this side of eternity, you know, as long as it's moral. But John says this, 
we felt the eternal. We saw the eternal. It was there. We touched it. The gospel is salvation, of salvation, is that the kingdom of God has come down into this place. Our circumstances are important. Our lives right now are important. The matter around us is important. The body is important. It's not just, I, I'm waiting to get out of here. And it's also not, I get to do whatever I want so long as it's moral. First of all, uh, clearly, no decision is ever simply a wisdom decision because it's a moral or immoral person making the decision. But second of all, every decision matters because God's kingdom has come to bear on your kingdom. Every decision matters. The future is new heavens and new earth. Not just some ethereal place. It's a renewal of the now. So the question is, how are your circumstances and your work, your doing, evidence of God's renewing work now? How is your doings, your walking, your decisions evidence of God's renewing work now? His kingdom come to bear on your life. If you understand the importance of the circumstances around you and are seeking God's kingdom, we can be happily content. Meaning satisfied with God at work in this place with a healthy longing for the next. An unhealthy longing for the next is just get me out of this place. None of this stuff matters anymore. Just get me to heaven. And any kind of uh, lesser extreme example of that. Versus Christ has come into this place to rescue us and the things around us matter to Him. Therefore, I'm content in what He is doing and in this place. Third, if we're beholding Christmas rightly, you will be deeply relational with others, with other believers. But be careful we don't make this picture look away it doesn't need to look or isn't supposed to look. I mean, we all, when we think about deeply relational with other believers, are going to have preconceived notions of what that looks like or basically write our own laws of what that's supposed to look like. So I want to be careful that we don't do that. But we talk theologically and biblically about what does it look like. Okay? Be careful that we're not assigning characteristics and adjectives to this that we don't need to. Let me quote, the incarnation imprints on us an attitude toward relationships. 
the incarnation imprints an attitude toward relationships upon us or on us. The point of the first four verses of 1 John is this. God saying, I desire fellowship with you. I desire personal relationship with you. God desires fellowship with His people. Let me paraphrase. If you are beholding Christmas rightly, you will be increasingly more desirous of intimate, personal relationships and a whole lot better at getting them. I think that's a pretty bold statement, but let me say it again in a different way. The desire to know people and to be known, so intimate personal relationships, and the skill to get those are both impacted by your beholding of Christmas. Now, let me give a caveat, and we're going to flesh this out. Let me give a caveat. Let's be careful that we don't mistake cute little acquaintances. And those have their place. Those have their place. But those kinds of friendships for deep, intimate, personal relationships. Let's be careful that we don't, we're not calling something what it is not. Like when I'm thinking about these relationships that are not intimate personal relationships, these are relationships where maybe you can even talk for hours, right? Just because you can talk for hours doesn't make it an intimate personal relationship. Or you can hang out and talk about stuff and what life is going on. Listen, it's one of the biggest dangers of social media is that we feel like we know people and that we are known when in really in reality it's all just a facade. What we're talking about here is relationships where you don't hide, relationships where you are known, even the things that hurt. Relationships where your expectations can and are being challenged and worked through, places where hope is given to the most deeply uh, challenging parts of your life. I said, the question is why? What does Christmas have to do with this? What does Christmas have to do with intimate personal relationships and better at getting them? Why? Because the incarnation is actually the secret to good relationships. The incarnation is a secret to good relationships. The incarnation is this. The incarnation is about someone dying to self in order to enter into someone else's world. It's about dying to self so that they might enter into someone else's world. You see... Our proclivity is to say, I want you to die to yourself and come into my world. I want you to die to yourself to come into my world. 
You need to love me the way I want to be loved. You need to speak to me the way I want to be spoken to. You don't know me well enough to speak to me that way. So once you meet my standard of knowing me, then you can exhort me. You need to know me. You need to come to me. We work hard at getting our needs met. I need this much. I need this from my spouse. I need this. I need to be heard. I need to be... Now listen, there is a healthy amount of care for self that is totally okay. So I'm not saying we never get to talk about these things and, and speak to you know, a spouse and hey, can you help me with this? Or to a child, can you relate to me this way? Or to a friend in the church, can, can you help me this way? I, I'm just saying that all of that is bad. What I'm saying is our proclivity is to do that and do that only and to be driven by that. And I'm saying the incarnation says just the opposite. We're not to be driven by self-protection. We're not to be driven by self-preservation. The incarnation shows us that it's about dying to self and entering into that person's life, that person's world. The incarnation is about understanding them. It's about meeting their needs. When I think about Christmas, I think of like the battle of needs. I give gifts. Why do you give gifts? You'll find out really quickly when you give gifts and the person's disappointed in your gift giving. Right? you find out really quickly why you gave them that gift. You gave them that gift so that you would, in exchange, receive payment of gratitude or, or thankfulness or whatever. Now, you should listen and go, wow, well, they didn't like that, so maybe I should do differently next time. Right? But you discover very quickly, what was my motivation or, or I want to give this gift, and who cares what's best for them? I just want to give them this. Or, or, or maybe I haven't uh, taken the time, listen, this is so, I haven't taken the time to really get into that person's world, and so I have no clue what kind of a gift would be a blessing to that person. We don't observe their world. We don't watch. We don't take notes. We don't... Listen. I think about, again, about my children here. When, when we were talking, I don't know if you've ever experienced this. I've experienced this with adults too, for that matter. But you're talking, and, and much of the time, they're just not paying attention to what you're saying, only focused on what they're going to say next, right? We've started this thing at the dinner table. Is what you're about to say have anything to do with what we've just been talking about? If it doesn't, it can wait, please. We'll get to it, but it can wait. Right? If you'd been paying attention to anything we were just talking about, you would have something to contribute. Christmas is... Is it, is it about my needs? Is it about the needs? Is it about... Listen, Christmas is about entering... It, it is about me dying to self, being crucified, so that I might enter into the world of somebody else and meet their needs, relate to them, learn them, observe, care for them. Listen, in a world, if that was happening, would you and I have to be fighting for our needs and... And right, we wouldn't have to because the people around us would be fighting for our needs. 
Let's not settle. Like, let's, let's settle for God's vision of this, right? Where, where we are dying to self, we're, we're trusting God to take care of us so that we can die and take care of others. The incarnation is about God saying, I love you so much, I'm going to enter your world. I'm going to feel your pain. I'm going to experience your struggle. I'm going to give up my glory in heaven to come walk in the muck with you. I'm going to give up my preferences so that I can meet with you. Again, our greatest need is not the cross. Our greatest need is to be in fellowship with the Father. And when you believe that your greatest need to be in fellowship with the Father was paid for by the incarnational work and subsequent righteous life of Jesus and His death as payment for our sin, then we won't have to walk into relationships fighting for our needs. With that at the forefront of our minds. Again, yes, there's appropriate ways to talk about that. And there's, but are we driven by it? We should be driven by it. We should be driven by God has taken care of me. Now let me go die. That's how the Son is able to come do this, right? He has experienced eternal relational bliss with the Father. Up until this moment, I'm cared for by the Father. I'm loved by the Father. Let me go die and give myself to them. Because I'm taken care of by the Father. I have what I need here. The incarnation, if we understand it rightly, if we behold it rightly, we will be more deeply relational with other believers. And indeed, we'll be more deeply relational with people who aren't believers as well. Just as a side note. Now, again, right, there's, there's, a, there's a unity there that, we can't be, that can't be had because we're not worshiping the same God and, and we can't expose and talk about sin in all the same ways, but, but it makes us more available to walk into their lives, to, to, to die to ourselves, to walk into their life as well. I mean, think about, again, the incarnation. Jesus didn't come and walk into saved people's lives. He came and walked into His enemies' lives. And rescued them out of it. Number four, it will make us free to be joyful. Free to be joyful. First John one four. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. So that our joy may be complete. That's a very fascinating phrase there at the end of, or in, chapter, in verse 4. We talk very quickly. We're talking about joy, talking about really kind of the idea of affections and uh, emotions, if you will. Like there's, he's saying that my joy may be complete. I want to give us just a couple quick false understandings of emotions that I think is present among us. Now listen, I'm not going to treat every nuance of emotion, so if I didn't get to your particular aspect, please forgive me. It'll be in blog 35. 
One, listen, emotions oftentimes drive our decision-making. Oftentimes drive our decision-making. I see it in this church. It's certainly true in our culture. And this is, again, a misconception of emotions. None of us would admit this, and yet it's certainly observable. Listen, who is Lord of our lives? Jesus. Not our emotions. Now, if you're being driven by your emotions for Jesus, right? I, my love for Him, my affections for Him, then I'd say that's a good thing, but oftentimes we're not. We're driven by our loves for other things. Listen, Jesus is Lord. Period. Two. That's all I'm going to say about that. Two. That's just the way I feel. It's just the way I feel, and it's okay. You can't tell me that this is wrong. Listen, in our culture, in our church culture, our emotions have been given ultimate authority. It's such a dangerous thing. We've, we've made our emotions the authority in our lives. Do you understand that it's the same logic used to justify things like homosexuality, transgenderism, abortion, molestation, etc.? Well, I just feel this way. And I'm allowed to feel this way. And therefore, I'm allowed to act on it. I feel this way. Who are you to question the way that I feel? It's a lie from the devil. Adam and Eve said the same thing. I feel that God is withholding good from us, and that became their authority, and then now look where we are. But listen to John. John's saying John's joy is deeply rooted in the Incarnation. Like his joy is staked upon the incarnation. He doesn't say, so at the end of this verse, we are writing these things, meaning what we have said and what is about to be said, so that our joy may be complete. John is not saying, I need your lives to be okay so that I can have any joy at all. No. There is a joy already that is driving John. There is a joy already that is present. He isn't saying that his joy in its totality is dependent upon them getting their act together. There is a measure of his joy that is not dependent upon them getting their act together. He has a joy that isn't impacted by the faithful obedience of others. John is saying, because of Christmas, because of the Incarnation, because Jesus has come in the flesh, I have a joy that is untouchable. He's saying, I have a joy that is already present. Because right? he doesn't say, again, I'm writing these things so that we might have joy. He's saying, I'm writing these things so that we might have joy that is complete. So there's a, a partial, like there's a, a partial 
reality to his joy. Some of it's there, but not all of it's there. Well, the stuff that is there, where's it from? From what he just talked about. Because God has come. Because the kingdom is here. Our joy is wrapped up in him. But there's a second reality here. And that his joy in fellowship with the Lord is affected by obedience to the Lord. So let me say that again. Joy in fellowship with the Lord is affected by obedience to the Lord. So we talked about this already. It's not possible to be in fellowship and out of fellowship with God. But look at what John is saying. That my joy may be complete. Not present. He's not saying so that my joy may be present, but that my joy may be complete. And what is the condition upon his joy, or that would be the condition for his joy being complete? It is walking in faithful obedience. We are writing these things so that when these realities take place in your life, our joy would be complete. In other words, the issue is not whether or not you're in or out of fellowship with God. The issue is whether or not you're experiencing full joy in that fellowship. The joy of the fellowship is the key. And the joy of our fellowship with God is what is affected by sin. This walk with God is affected by sin. It's not this It's not the fellowship in the sense of are we in or out, but it's the joy of this fellowship that is hurt with sin or encouraged by faithfulness. John is saying, you need to get your act together in order for our joy to be complete. How's that for a statement? We're writing these things, like, and it's not just, you know, we're writing these things so that we can put this out there for some people to read. We're writing these things so that they would bring about change in your life so that our joy, our joy, yours and ours, would be complete, would be full. My joy and yours, your faithfulness to God impacts your joy in God. I can't have complete joy unless we're joyful in the Lord because of our faithfulness to the Lord. Listen, this this joy in the Lord, Jesus as Lord, it's what we submit our lives to. Right? And this, this joy in the Lord, and both these things play together. But our joy and our fellowship with the Lord, these, if we're going to understand emotions rightly, understand that our joy in the Lord, this, this really, this, like, when we think about joy, think about like things like peace. There's peacefulness in joy with the Lord. There's restfulness in joy with the Lord. There's, there's uh, sustainability in the, in, 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 joy, in the joy of the Lord. There's hopefulness in the joy of the Lord. 
And, and, and as, we, as we walk in faithfulness, this joy is, is encouraged, it's bolstered, it's increased. And, but we're, we're, we're submitted to not this, these other things in our lives, these other emotions and such in our lives. What we're submitted to is this, this is the word of the Lord. This is the Lord our God. This is who we follow. This is who we submit to. He has said these things. Now let's walk in faithful obedience. And what, what John is saying is now this faithful obedience is going to have an effect on your emotion of joy. They're connected. They go together. Yes, we know things like our, our joy in the Lord also increases, like it affects positively obedience to God, right? Like the delight in Him and this, but that's not what John's talking about at this point. He's talking about this faithfulness in walking in the light has an impact on our joy as well. Listen, Christmas, if our joy in part is staked upon the reality of God come in the flesh, like John's talking about here, Christmas frees us to then experience the highs and lows of other people. Again, back to this incarnational reality where where God comes into our world. Jesus comes into our world. As we think about that, if our joy is wrapped up in the, in, in the incarnation of God, that He has come to this place, He has died to Himself to meet me, to rescue me in this place, if He has done that, and my joy is wrapped up in that, then I can do this kind of incarnational ministry too. Listen, it's difficult to merge our lives with other people. It's messy. You begin to experience much of the same burdens as other people. The burdens of their own brokenness and things that are out of their control. The, the burdens of, of their sin and the consequences thereof. And the burdens of, again, things like suffering that was not because of a doing of their own hands. And a lot of times, here's, what's hap- here's what happens. If they're unhappy, we're unhappy, and therefore we pull away. And we pull away from people. We walk away from people. But John has a joy that is untouchable. Yes, his joy is made complete in this faithful walking, this obedience, but he has a joy that is untouchable. Why? Because the incarnation means that Jesus Christ, God Himself, merged His life into our brokenness. He came into our brokenness. He wept with us. He got messy with us. He dealt with our things like posturing and self-justification. And took the nails for us. 
So, listen, he comes, he experiences the highs and the lows with us. He comes and gets messy with us. And then, on top of all of that, he takes the nails for us. John understood this point. Light has come. He paid the price for our mess. Jesus had a joy in the Father that was untouchable. Why? Because he'd seen the Father's face. He'd been with the Father for all of eternity. So you have joy. If you have the joy of Christ come in the flesh, you'll have the freedom to get involved in the lives of other people. Christmas makes you free to be joyful. It makes you realize, quote, the emotion of hurt, the emotion of grief is not going to take me all the way down because I have an untouchable joy because Jesus has come in the flesh. He's here. He's come. So if you're beholding Christmas rightly, it will make you deeply relational with the Father and others, happily content and free to be joyful even in the midst of brokenness. Let's pray. Father, I pray that your gospel would be hope for your people. Their eyes would be fixed upon the hope that is the cross. That our, that as we th- walk through this life where we are in the middle of walking as saints, sufferers, and sinners, we are saints because of the blood of Jesus. And we can walk that way or we can walk as those who are simply under suffering or we can walk as those who are sinning. All of our lives are are walking in some measure of each of those all day long. And life is complicated and hard. But let us find joy And the fact that in the midst of this difficult life that your son Jesus came to be present in the midst of it. He came to walk in the messiness of this world. The mess that we've made out of it. He came to walk in the midst of our suffering. And to experience much of it with us. He came to walk in the midst of our sinning. And to be affected by much of it. But he walked as a perfect saint. He walked as as one without sin. Even though he suffered. And he experienced our brokenness. And came not to just rescue us out of this place. But to heal us in it. First and foremost, to make us right with you. 
to heal our relationship with our Creator and our Father God. He came to do that. And He came to make the place around us new. Father, we anxiously await the new heavens and the new earth. And we anxiously await to see Your face. And we anxiously await to, to walk in a place where there is no more suffering and there is no more sinning. But a taste of that kingdom has come now. It has come to bear on us now. The fruits of this kingdom have come now. Let us taste and see that you are good. Let us live faithful, obedient lives so that our joy would be made complete. Father, thank you for this word from your saint, John. May our lives be encouraged to faithfulness and obedience to you. Let our joy be made complete in you, Father, for it's in your son's name we pray. Amen.